0: Welcome to this episode of woman to woman podcast series. Our guest today is Ligia Ricardi. She is the founder of Edda Rose, a wellness company for women. She has been at the vanguard of patient engagement in digital health for 20 years as an entrepreneur, consultant, and in the U.S. federal government, where she launched and led nationwide programs and policies for consumers. She has been repeatedly named among the most influential people in healthcare and health IT and is quoted by Forbes, Consumer Reports, and the Wall Street Journal. She started At Wellesley, Harvard, and the MIT Media Labs. Hi, Laigie. Welcome to Woman to Woman podcast. So glad to have you here with us today.
1: Thank you, Divya. I'm so excited to be here with you.
0: I know our listeners are in for a treat today. Where did you grow up and how was your childhood?
1: So, I grew up south of Boston, I'm from Massachusetts. I have most of my life been an East Coaster. I grew up primarily as an only child in that I was 12 when my little brother was born. So I kind of had that experience of being an only child and then being a sister was good. I think if I'd if it had been up to me, I would have liked some sisters and brothers. It would have been fun to play with them. But instead, I just made close friends and became good friends with my cousins. So there are silver linings, I suppose, to everything. I think also I was lucky I can say in retrospect to have time and attention from my parents so I'm sure there's always an element of like oh that would have been different but it gets even more fun now that my brother and I are very much grown up you have a different relationship when we were little I was almost like a surrogate mom for him in some ways but then obviously he's become a person who's a good friend and close family member as an adult which is awesome so
0: talking of friends you know did you have a lot of friends and How did you continue those relationships moving forward? Like that's pretty much the basis of your initial network, right? In any life, you know, our childhood friends.
1: So I feel really fortunate because at age five in kindergarten on the first day, I saw a little girl who looked friendly and <laughs> we asked one another, I can't remember if she asked me or if I asked her, I think I said, do you like animals? And this was my friend, Emily, who does like animals. And this was like a key friend characteristic for me at the the time because animals were kind of a big deal. They still are for me. Um, But anyway, so we both like animals and we became good friends and are still very good friends today, even though she lives on the other side of the country. But I feel really fortunate that we have been close our entire lives and that it's not unique. I know other people have good friendships too, but I have always just felt a deep sense of security and so fortunate to have such a close person in my life from the very earliest days all the way through. There are other friends from various aspects of my life that I'm in touch with too, I think it's really important to nurture those friendships and to take the time and energy. I know it can be hard when you get into the thick of life with maybe raising a new family, romantic relationships career, moving, health issues, all the many things on your plate as an adult. And it can be easy sometimes to just like drop those friendships, but it's always, always worth making that effort to stay in touch and to connect with your friends, spend time with them, be there for them through their good times and bad. Such an amazing investment.
0: And were there people who really shaped you who you are today?
1: I would say, I mean, there are many. A couple of them, though, were my mom and dad, who are very different people. And they come from different backgrounds. And they even I would say even their families represent different kind of experiences and worldviews. My dad's side of the family are Italian immigrants, big family, my grandfather had 11 brothers and sisters, and they kind of like built their own businesses, several generations of building construction, doing stonework, make your own way, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, sometimes scrappy, creative, determined. My mother's of the family was much more is more focused on the arts, culture, history. There are people who many people with professions in some of the big museums and in academia. So a love of history and art and beauty and knowledge and this kind of like scrappy entrepreneurial, we're gonna make this work kind of side. I saw those initially as quite different, but I really try going forward and and now to kind of take the best of both of those and combine them.
0: You grew up with this very supportive family. So as you move forward to your high school, what were some of the professions you looked at, and why those specific professions?
1: So interesting that you put it that way. I didn't really think about professions in high school, to be totally honest. I was the artist as a kid growing up. I also became involved in student government. I liked writing. I liked math. I liked a lot of things, but I was really the artist, but I didn't really know what I would do with that. Like if I would professionally go into the arts or not. So I went to college and I went to a liberal arts school. I went to Wellesley College, which was also a women's college and studied a whole range of things. And quite honestly, even when I got out of college, I was still thinking like, Hmm, I'm not really sure what my profession is or what to do with I didn't want to be an artist full time. I felt like, although I love making art, it didn't feel, I don't know, somehow mainstream enough or applied enough. I'm not sure. I think I also had pressure again from both sides of the family particularly my dad's side, the practical pull yourself up by the bootstrap side saying, what are you going to do that's concrete, (laughs) that makes money, that kind of thing. So actually my very first job was at Harvard Business School where I was writing case studies and working with a professor who was a business historian who was also a big influence on me. And he really talked about this combination of doing well and doing good, both at the same time. And I love that analogy. And he would sort of draw a graph with an x-axis and a y-axis one was good and one was well. And the point was if you can sort of maximize both and doing well, meaning having economic impact, like doing well financially, but also impacting a lot of people and doing good, having some sort of social value that you give to the world are both things to strive for. And if you can balance both, again, some people may lean one toward more toward one or the other, but incorporate elements of both. That's the ideal. And I definitely wholeheartedly buy that.
0: That's a great first job, by the way. Who wouldn't want to do Harvard Business uh, case studies because every MBA school uses them. So that's a great start. After that kind of a job, what motivated you to get into other career options? Today, you are the entrepreneur you're the founder of Edaro, Rose, so we'll get to that in a minute. But what led you to being an entrepreneur?
1: That job actually was pretty foundational for me, not only because it was my first real job. So I suppose when anyone has their first job, it's... An experience that they learn from. It wasn't just this idea of doing well and doing good, which certainly stuck. Also, since I was working with this business historian, we actually did a lot on kind of looking at American business history and saying like, what are the big forces of history that have changed things? And I had been a history major in college as well as um, Italian language. But so I'm interested in history and big patterns. And from the work that I did in that job in writing these case studies, We focused a lot on information technology and the power of the internet and of digital technologies generally. And the impact that they're having in our world, not just in business, but on social issues. And it was really in that job that I became fascinated with that question of, okay, if technology is such a major force reshaping our world right now, how can I work with that? How can I be a part of that? So from that job, I actually went for the first time to Washington, D.C., which is where I live now. I took a job with the Federal Communications Commission partly because we'd written a case study about it at Harvard. And so I had met the person who was about to be sworn in as chairman. And he said, Hey, do you want to move to Washington and work with me? And I was all starry eyed and like, of course, that sounds amazing. I didn't really realize what I was in for, but that's okay. (laughs) I just picked up and moved. Um, It turned out I was like the only non-lawyer in a whole agency of lawyers who were all deep in the details of telecommunications law, which was interesting, but I realized I wasn't deeply interested in some of the sort of nitty gritty aspects of common carrier law and things like that. I was interested though, in how technology could be used and applied for learning and for healthcare. And so Even at the FCC, I had an opportunity to work on applying the internet and internet policies to healthcare, which was very sort of early. And this was like in the late 90s. And so we pulled together at the FCC an advisory group of the people who were already essentially starting the digital health field in a way by figuring out what can you do with the internet to not only improve healthcare, but some of them were saying, hey, this is a great tool for patients too. These kinds of tools we can put, you know, internet, we can wire libraries and schools, and that can help people take more agency and control in their own learning. And I love this idea of empowering people to do things for themselves with technology. So that is the common thread in my career from then on. Like how do you take technology and let people be healthy, be well, follow their curiosity, live as fully as possible. I've been in and out of government in public policy a couple of times. I've spent a number of years at ONC working with getting patients access to their health data. I've also worked in the private sector, most recently at Carium, which is a company which is using technology to extend care virtually beyond healthcare systems into the home. All of this is about empowering individuals to get their data. That's what I'm doing. You know, currently I'm riffing on that theme with Ada Rose. I'd also spent a number of years just kind of consulting in this space. Again, this theme is how do you use these powerful tools to let people be healthy and have agency? Really,
0: You have done jobs in the government, you have done corporate jobs and entrepreneurship as well. How are all these different in your view?
1: Well, I will say one way in which they're the same is there's that theme that I said about empowering people through technology. And they're the same in that most of the jobs that I've had have been about building something or creating something new, regardless of the setting whether it's in an organization or outside of a big organization. Ways in which they're different are, I mean, when you're in the government, it's a huge organization, obviously, and it's hard to make change. But if you can, it's an incredible lever to change society. Although it's very hard sometimes to build something or do something new, there's a lot of resistance and for good reason. I think people outside of Washington often complain about Washington and don't understand that there are so many smart, hardworking effective people doing great work within some of the agencies. So that's one kind of message I'd like to spread. And I actually think it's an incredible opportunity for people to be able to work both in the public sector and the private sector. But they also don't realize that some of the reasons that it's hard to just change everything within government are actually like it's wise <laughs> that it is that way. I think we've seen in recent years, with certainly a lot of changes between both parties and a lot of political differences of opinion. It is fortunate for our country that it is not incredibly easy to just kind of like knock out all existing policies and law and everything else and start again every four years or every eight years. There has to be some continuity. And that's part of why it's so hard to make change in government sort of designed that way to not make it too easy to just radically shift in a way that would make it hard by the way for the private sector to do its job and to thrive to go back to the story of how are they different government making change incredibly difficult but when you do move that lever boy do you have a big impact particularly in healthcare, in which government is the biggest payer the biggest influence in every way So that's huge. And the private sector, you're a lot more nimble and free to do things, but not as many people care, frankly. I mean, (laughs) you you can jump up and down and do your little thing, but if it's not something that taps into a bigger issue that people care about, it may or may not be relevant. So those are some of the trade-offs.
0: And how is it being an entrepreneur now? You're on your own. You have to kind of get your own funding. So it is a lot of work. Just start something and get it off its feet, you know? How has that experience been for you?
1: It's been hard, but really, really fun. I have a partner who's working with me. Her name is Lauren Creech. So I'm not totally alone, but I would also say we've been enrolled for the last couple of months in an organization or a program called the Founder Institute, which is an accelerator for very early stage companies. And that has made a huge difference because we're not doing this alone. There are tons of best practices out there. There are many mentors. The sort of process of building a startup doesn't have to be, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time you are creating something new and that's difficult and it can be frightening and it can be frustrating, but it's also tons of fun, I think. And it's more fun in the context of other people who have similar journeys and who you can learn from. I've spent many years being self-employed, mostly as a consultant. And that is sometimes very lonely work, honestly, because at the end of the day, you're the one who's making the strategy about who you're going to try to work with, trying to win business, doing all the work, literally taking out the trash, fixing your IT issues, all that stuff. You're just on your own all the time, except when you're working with clients, which is a little bit different. But now this startup phase of my career, I'm really excited to have a part and to work with various other people who are on the same journey. So it really does not feel like a lonely process in the same kind of way. It can sometimes be really frightening. You know, you're figuring out something new. You're going to make mistakes along the way. You have to get comfortable with that. So
0: what are some of the key characteristics that make a good entrepreneur, just based on what you have seen and what you have experienced?
1: You have to be stubborn. You can't just give up. If somebody says, no, you can't do that. You, if you're the kind of person who's like, "But wait, what if we try this way? <laughs> like that's a good characteristic to have. Like you're just not going to be like, well, okay. Like just keep at it. So there's that being curious, I think. Again, this is about creativity. Like something isn't working. Why? How might we do something else? Or this customer isn't has a need that they have to fulfill, but like, what's the need behind the need, for example. So let's give an example actually from from Ada Rose. So, We're trying to help women who are overwhelmed with the struggle in particular of balancing career and family, which is a lot. I've done it for, well, my oldest is now 17. So for 17 years, and when I say, I mean, people can balance certainly family without having kids per se, but this unique experience or particular experience of having children and being engaged in your career is pretty intense as I think you have experience with. Um, We're trying to make life easier for people in this profile. So we've done a ton of customer interviews, like just talk to people. And it's really interesting, you know, as I dive into what do you do to take care of yourself? What does self-care look like for you? Sometimes people will give you an answer like, oh, I don't have time. But if you're curious and you keep digging, you understand that it's not really that time is the problem maybe it's an underlying sense of guilt or something else. So kind of curiosity, digging further, stubbornness, thirst for variety, right? Because you have to do everything when you're a small team, even when you're a bigger team. Like when I was working at the company Carrium, we were 25 or 30 people, but even so you had to be flexible and just jump in and do a whole variety of things. It's not the kind of job or career in which you come in every day and you know exactly what your schedule is and exactly what you're going to be doing that day. You do to a point, but you have to be ready to just pick up and do whatever needs doing. So
0: now let's come to Ada Rose. Yeah, A very interesting story behind the name. And what inspired you to start this company?
1: Ada Rose is named after one of my daughters, we actually call her Ada, but her middle name is Rose. A story about her that was part of why I liked this name for the company is, you know, I told you about this importance for me of using technology to help empower people to take more charge of their health, of their lives in every way. Well, when Ada was born, she was born with a small hole in her heart. It's called a VSD of a ventricular septal defect. So from pretty early on in her first days, she had this really loud heart murmur. And so we went to a cardiologist, my husband and I, who said, oh my goodness, you know, this is a major threat to her well-being. It could stunt her growth. If her heart is not effectively pumping blood to the rest of her body, it could impact not only the development of her limbs and so on, but her brain, like it could stunt her ability to develop in many ways. Therefore you need open heart surgery and you need it. Now that was obviously not a position parents want to find themselves in. It was kind of terrifying. (laughs) But uh, we asked a lot of questions. And I was working at the time at ONC in the federal government, where I was working on patient empowerment. And I saw as examples, so many people who had used technology in particular, to take more control of their health. And I realized that you really have to, as an individual, be a partner in your health and in your healthcare. And so I carried this over to the situation with Ada Rose. We did a lot of research. We rented a hospital grade scale and tracked her weight. So we did sort of data tracking. We did research. We got a second opinion. The data tracking had to do with whether she was actually developing or not and gaining weight and that kind of thing. Long story short, we did find another doctor who had another, Opinion and said essentially, oh no, I don't think you should rush into open heart surgery. You can take more of a kind of watchful waiting approach. She should be okay again, assuming we don't see any danger signs. So that was the approach we took, even though it was difficult and scary to do so. There were certainly many friends and family members who said, like, no, you should just do what the doctor said. But again, my work was wait a minute, as an individual, you now have the use of technology and ways to access data that you never could have in the past to maybe take a better path or a different path. So that's what we've done with Ada. She is now 12 and she's never had surgery. She's, she's healthy. She's still has a very small hole in her heart, but it doesn't impact her health or well being. We still get it checked occasionally, but as she's grown, uh, her body's grown, the hole hasn't. So in relative scale, it's it's smaller, it's less of an impact. And if she ever were need to need surgery, it would be a much less invasive procedure than an open heart surgery on a baby. So I feel grateful for that and grateful to all of the patient advocates who inspired me I'm grateful to have access to technology, which certainly helped me and my husband in making that decision, but also I really absorbed this attitude of like yeah take some ownership and responsibility for your health and well-being. I wanted that spirit imbued into this company. So I want to help other women, other people say like yeah, I I have some agency in how I feel and my outlook, whether it's about healthcare and we're not currently focused deeply on healthcare, it's more about kind of wellness, both your mental health and some tips for kind of physical well-being and so on. But I wanted to really encapsulate this spirit of empowerment, doing things on your own. And honestly, I just like the name too. It's feminine. And I wanted to signal that this is particularly for women. I just think it's a beautiful name.
0: It is a beautiful name. And we're so glad to hear that uh, Ida is doing well. And we really wish her all the best. Thank you. It is a beautiful name. Throughout your journey, did you ever have instances where you felt being a woman was a disadvantage? And how did you overcome those?
1: I mean, that's an interesting question. I think that often on my journey, I have been the only woman. Or I feel, quite honestly, even today in the Founder Institute, that program that I mentioned that we're in, the Startup Accelerator, my partner and I, of the nine individuals who have survived to the current point in the program, I think we started with 15 or 17. Many of people of the other people have dropped out, but we're the only women in the group. So whether it's startups or whether it's working in uh, sometimes in certain areas in the government, unfortunately, too often, I don't like it when I'm the only woman around. Obviously, I've had many wonderful men who I've learned from and worked with well, but I do feel like there's some bias sometimes. On the other hand, sometimes as a woman, once you've reached a certain level in your career, whether it's kind of getting that leadership title or a certain level within an organization. It's funny but it almost flips and people are interested in like well how is it that you are a woman and they might be more likely to reach out for you reach out to you to get your input on whether it's participating on a panel. People are trying to avoid manholes these days or get a diverse viewpoint. So Once you do sort of cross that threshold, kind of moving beyond sort of entry level work up to a certain level, in some ways it almost becomes easier, which maybe is helpful for those earlier on the trajectory. But I also feel for those of us, and not that it's always easy by any means, but if you are a woman who is fortunate to have it more of a leadership position, it's also your, I think, responsibility and that of men too. To reach out your hand to those other women and girls behind you, encourage them, support them, amplify and repeat their successes and their ideas, and really just do all that you can to help more people come in and and join you. And I feel that way, not just about women, but about other people who are often disadvantaged within workplace settings. Due to ethnicity or culture or even accent, people feel like, oh, you're different. I don't understand you. And it can be a lot harder. I've certainly experienced that. It's very important to me to help other women thrive and do well. And honestly, that's part of the whole Ada Rose thing. I'm particularly thinking about women who are trying to do this dual challenge of being a mother and being in a career. It can be super hard. And sometimes you feel like you have to hide a certain part of yourself in the workplace. I remember being in a particular job environment in which I had another colleague who was A mother of young kids. And she stood up in a meeting and said like, Oh my goodness, I need to go. I have to pick up my son from daycare. And later our boss chided her and said, I cannot believe you said that in front of that important person. Like somehow that was not cool. Like, don't let that, don't let them know you're a mother. (laughs) Don't let that personal side show through. It somehow seems unprofessional, unprofessional or bad or wrong or whatever. And I've thought, that was many years ago that that happened. But I've thought, hmm, you know, again, not that she needs to totally derail the meeting. But on the other hand, it shouldn't be such a sort of crime to let your personal life show through a little bit. And I think in some ways, a silver lining of COVID has been that many of us, whether men or women, have the experience of Being on Zoom and there are kids and cats and dogs and all kinds of things, you know, pieces of our regular lives that literally come into the picture, which is different than traditionally sort of pretending you're someone else when you walk out the door. There are limits. I'm not saying like have no boundaries. But on the other hand, let's embrace the holistic self within the context of the career world. And that makes it easier for women in particular to thrive, given that we do disproportionately take on a lot of the kind of aspects of of child rearing, certainly of pregnancy you know like let's just get com- more comfortable with that being part of life and ourselves as whole beings
0: are there certain behaviors that in your view that women should adapt that really help them maybe lose it up a little bit again to your point you know we do take a lot more on ourselves
1: one thing that i've tried to stop doing but i noticed other people doing i think it's just built in <laughs> it's just this compulsive apologizing for things that aren't our fault. Oh, I'm sorry for this. I'm sorry for that. Whatever. Like just don't apologize again. If you do something wrong by all means, apologize, but I think we're, we're too quick to sort of take on responsibility for things that aren't even our issue. Speaking up about what you really need, maybe it is something related specifically to being a woman or maybe it's not. So it could be, for instance, you need a place to safely and quietly like pump breast milk if, you're, if you have an infant or something, and, like speak up and ask for that. Or maybe you do need to leave early to pick up your son from daycare or whatever it is. But it it could be things that have nothing to do with motherhood per, per se, but are more about kind of our emotional needs and how we feel. Getting better and more articulate. Maybe it's asking for a raise. You know, we're not, I think it's a lot harder for women in general to say, no, that's not acceptable. Or I would like something different, or that doesn't feel fair to me. We're basically taught, we're acculturated, like, from early on to make other people happy and to accept what is and sort of make it all smooth and easy for others. And really often at the cost of quietly suffering in some way, cultivating the skill of understanding what you need and then articulating your needs and not apologizing for them is something that women in particular need to work on men too, but it tends to come in my experience much more easily to many. So
0: on a personal note, is there anything that not a lot of people know about you that you would like to share with our listeners?
1: Some people know, but I spent a year in East Africa with my husband and that doesn't necessarily easily fit into this narrative of career and everything else. So it's something many people don't know. It was fun and challenging and different. It's just one experience that helped me look at the world from a different set of eyes. The fact of being an ethnic and racial minority and having that be very obvious was interesting as an experience for me. I had also lived abroad previously in Italy, but I can kind of pass for Italian. I have Italian lineage on one side. And once I'd sort of gotten rid of my old ripped American jeans and put on some more Italian clothing, People thought I was native, but like living in East Africa, I was very obviously not Eritrean. And that is an experience that gives me greater empathy for people dealing with all kinds of difference in many different contexts. But in terms of just fun with that, I mean, it wasn't all just like a serious learning cultural experience. We did some fun, wacky stuff. Like I went to the market and I saw a baby sheep that was just adorable. So I decided to buy it as a pet, not for dinner, as most people would have bought it for dinner, but I bought it as a pet. And so I raised this pet. She lived in our yard and we fed her roses and A friend had sent me a care package with some stuff from America, including woolite. So I was like, woolite, wool, sheep. So I like washed the sheep with the woolite. And so she would just glow bright white next to all the other sort of sheep in the country who were kind of various shades of like gray. This sheep was like a star, like blinding in the African sun. But anyway, so that was fun and a little bit silly. And I would try and teach her like tricks, jumping through, we had this old basketball hoop that was no, not up however many feet that is but actually on the ground, but I could get the sheep to sort of like go through the hoop and do other funny things like that. So, but um, yeah, I love travel. I love learning how other people live and think. It's always fun to share experiences like that.
0: That sounds like a great time you had. And just (laughs) listening to it, I'm having so much fun. Legia, in closing, any final comments for our listeners?
1: I know Divya that you have a lot of listeners of varying ages. Of course, the, the majority are women, but particularly for the, younger women and girls out there. I just am so excited that you listen to this program and I hope that you feel inspired and brave and curious and that you will follow what you are passionate about and don't be afraid to reach out to other women at other stages in their careers and lives. Ask questions ask for favors, express what you need and what you want, because we all want you guys to succeed too.
0: Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time, your priceless advice and all the best with uh, Ada Rose. We really wish you all the best. Thank you so much.